Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elio with the Spectrum Strategy Group. And in this episode, I have Damon with me today. And uh, this is sort of an ongoing conversation that I had started about gender identity, sexuality, and sort of that intersection with autism. We've had Varun uh, Warrier on here doing some of that research. And also, I uh, had a conversation with Marinike. And she, as she's been on before, and she had suggested I speak to Damon. So thank you so much for being here with me today. And um, Damon, for our listeners, if you could just give everyone a little bit of background around yourself and about your involvement in the neurodiversity movement, and just, um, just so we can get to know you better. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor to even be talking about this. Um, I uh, am 43 years old now. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and Damon is <laughs> is not my given name, uh, but I'm trying it out. Um, I went through most of my life, of course, being born in the 70s, not knowing I was on the spectrum and um, really struggling with that. I was kind of a classic you know, bookworm nerd child uh, with poor social skills and everything like that. Um, what happened was I was put into gifted programs and had a lot of expectations put on me, but no accommodations or understanding of what I really needed um, to function. I also have ADHD along with the uh, autism and that made uh, going off to college very, very difficult. Some bad things happened to me when I got to college. Um, and, you know, even though people had great hopes for me, things kind of spiraled down in my adult life from there, um, which is what happens when <laughs> you're not properly supported and have no understanding of yourself. So it was uh, around the time I was 39, 40 years old, I watched a few documentaries and did a little research, and in the past 10 years, a ton of new research has come out about um, how autism and neurodivergency appears in adult women and girls. And uh, that's really why there's been this burst in um, lots of uh, autistic women coming out of the woodwork, you know. Um, it also is why uh, there have been so many more autistic women and girls referred to gender clinics. Um, I think you established pretty well um, on some previous episodes that there's an enormous overlap between um, uh, neurodivergent people and uh, queer people of various types. Um, 
and it's quite striking. We do our own internal polls on Facebook <laughs> and um, it, it's usually around 70% of autistic people who answer, you know, it's self-selecting, but they mm -hmm. answer and it's um, just amazing. Uh, what the way I came to, um, well, eventually, let me just say I was, I was diagnosed. I finally figured out what was going on and got an official diagnosis. And then I started really um, having a degree in writing and, and most of a degree in special education. I was like, this is perfect. I will speak out. I will talk about how difficult and, um, you know, how difficult my life was. Um, not to paint myself as a victim or have people pity me just because I want so bad for it to not keep happening to people mm -hmm. and, um, no person deserves to, you know, end up in the criminal justice system or in uh, a mental health care institution or, um, impoverished or homeless as so many of us do. So, um, what I did is I, um, helped uh, put together a few symposiums uh, that were autistic led um, in the South. And uh, I formed a local support group for um, women and non-binary AFABs uh, in the Chattanooga area. So I was extremely new to all things gender related um, when I did that. And I made some mistakes, um, I, of course, would welcome any um, trans women into the group, but none kind of materialized to go in there. Um, but it's a problem that um, there aren't neurodivergent support groups for people, um, for people who are simply not cis. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem and the reason I formed this group was because um, the women were uncomfortable being in primarily male <laughs> autism support groups. And um, there was uh, some inappropriate, you know, overtures to them and they didn't feel comfortable. And our experiences are so different um, because of how we're socialized that I thought it would be helpful if we could have a place where we could feel comfortable opening up about things like our sexual vulnerability and bad things that had happened to us, you know, but when I got into that group, I realized like fully like half the people who came um, were trans or non-binary um, mm -hmm. trans, meaning they were going to transition to a binary male. Mm -hmm. And um, I kept listening to them and the things they were saying. And I was like, Oh, that's me. Um, and it wasn't out of any desire to fit in better or anything. It just was another layer of my neurodivergency I had to work through. And I found out, you know, through all my social media connections and Twitter and Facebook and people I follow that that's a common experience. It's very common now that so many um, uh, female people identified as female at birth are not only being diagnosed a whole lot more um, with neurodivergent conditions, but they're also finding that they're more likely to be queer or trans, you know, and it's kind of a, another kind of twice exceptional is what it is, <laughs> you know, it, um, but it's an, it's a very difficult intersection to be at, um, especially, I mean, 
trans rights and disability rights, including uh, the neurodivergent, uh, the neurodiversity movement. Um, they, um, I'm sorry, my ADHD brain just, just No, but you know what? Let's pause here because I know you have yeah. you have so much to say and we've had this conversation before. But but so I want to step back because I think for some of our listeners, um, we you know, we've been discussing terms that <laughs> that maybe some people don't totally understand. And while it feels like a normal conversation to us, um, it, it might not be part of everyone's, you know, glossary of terms that they access on a regular basis. So um, when so people can better understand, I think, and I actually just had this conversation with a friend just a couple weeks ago, you know, she was asking me, okay, so wait, what's the difference between queer? And, and, and I kind of get trans, but, you know, I grew up in a world where it was just like, you know, straight, gay, bi, like, I, I, I'm confused, like, can, you know, can you help me understand? Because I really don't understand. And I just thought, well, first, I was happy she trusted me to ask me that question. And then I was like, well, I will do my best to kind of help you understand from what I've learned so far. So can you help some of our, you know, our folks listening in understand what and then cis, you know, cisgender and what all those terms kind of mean? I know that uh, I guess at a high level at this point, we can kind of just start talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. And it's, it's confusing, you know, even for people who are um, queer and queer itself is kind of a reclaimed term, you know, back in, uh, you know, times when I was born, it was often used as a slur. Um, but it is a reclaimed term. And it's it's a word that acknowledges that our sexualities and how they interact with our gender identity and all this stuff is extremely complicated. So just saying you are queer is just a way of saying that you are uh, not a cisgender, heterosexual. Something is not the same as being, uh, you know, a straight, non-trans person, you know. Uh, it means you're gay in some way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, um, and trans uh, just means it can include, it's an umbrella term for people who might transition in a binary way, like to the opposite gender or people who might uh, transition to somewhere in between there or have uh, just a, there's a very long and confusing sure. list. Sure. of uh, identities under the non-binary trans umbrella. Um, but yes, queer and trans are just umbrella terms for a wide range of uh, sexual and gender perception experiences that people can have. Our brains are complicated. And if your brain is wired up differently, it's even more complicated. And I think that's a, a big reason why we don't see just one autistic or neurodivergent trait in isolation very much. You know, when you get one diagnosis, it, it kind of morphs into a bunch of different ones. Um, and so I think that's just in general why there's a big overlap. If you are, you, if you have one thing different about your brain, it's more likely that other things are going to be <laughs> affected, you know, right. and there's been so much research about it, but um, you know, we're here. Mm -hmm. We're weird and we're queer and it's just not going to change. Uh, so what we would like scientists and 
you know, researchers and everybody to focus on is um, practical questions for improving our medical care or quality of life um, and for advancing our rights and protections under the law, which are very tricky right now. Um, So, yes, those terms are confusing. I will go ahead and tell you uh, what my identity is or identities, but um, I am pansexual and that means that's a great term. It doesn't mean bisexual necessarily. It means when I am looking at people, um, everybody has kind of like a filter. They run perspective mates through, you know, and gender seems to be the first filter that most people do. Like, is this person uh, a male or a female? Um, but that's not how my attraction works. Uh, gender is just not a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I can be attracted to any person and I'm more attracted to what someone's, uh, brain is like and whether they can connect with me on that level. Um, I'm also demisexual, like, uh, Marina Kay talked about, and that means, uh, a lot of people will say if you're bisexual or pansexual, that must mean you're promiscuous and you just will do mm. anybody. And that's uh, not really how it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm actually very, very picky about people I become physically intimate with. Um, it's very difficult and tricky having my sensory experience to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also bi-gender, which means I'm kind of, I feel like I am a mix of, of both genders. Um, And that is a non-binary identity. Um, So that's kind of where I stand on things now. And I use they, them pronouns um, because I'm not sure. um, But I'm kind of center of masculine. I am more comfortable being a little more masculine. Uh, It's also cheaper and easier. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, the the deodorants smell so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but like a lot of people, um, I have attempted testosterone and it did not agree with my mental health. And that can happen to people sometimes. Um, if you're already (laughs) have a lot of trouble with your moods and so forth and your hormones and my endocrine system is messed up, the addition of, um, HRT can sometimes be difficult to handle mentally. And that's the kind of thing I would like research into. It's like, how do people with severe anxiety and mood problems, um, what can we do to make them, uh, more stable as they're going through these hormonal changes, you know, um, but yeah yeah and i'm again i want to ask you you were talking about when you were joining your group that you were like wow i i feel like this might seem to to fit like this this might make a little more sense and sometimes i i liken that experience to sometimes we don't know what what we don't know, right? So until we start experiencing and exploring and talking to other people, you mentioned you watch some documentaries and reading, and and I know you you like you like to do a lot of research. Uh, when you start actually exploring those things, things start to land and feel. I call you know it's like those aha moments where you're like, oh wow, this this actually starting to resonate. Um, so does that does that make sense for you too in that experience? Yes. Um, a lot of times, um, 
my gender diversity and my neurodiversity are so tangled up in each other that it's hard to pull apart. And I don't, don't know if that's really necessary mm. to do mm-hmm. that. Um, I, you know, of course I started listening and reading and I have had contact with trans people um, in my adult life. And right now, you know, my best friend is trans and um, it's, it's very similar to the process of realizing that you are on the spectrum. It's almost identical. Mm-hmm. Let me read you something that she sent me the other day about what that feels like. And I think she really nailed, (laughs) hit the nail on the head with this. Mm -hmm. I wrote, I'm actively finding the process of coming to terms with being trans very similar to realizing I'm neurodivergent. And she wrote back, totally, it's really intense, right? (laughs) First, you re-examine your memories. Then you doubt yourself for not figuring it out sooner at the same time that you finally (laughs) understand more and more chunks of yourself. Then you mistrust everyone around you for either one, not understanding what was going on with you (laughs) two, intentionally or accidentally causing you to mask your neurodivergent and gender divergent traits or three pandering, infantilizing or continuing to misunderstand or misdiagnose everything about you. This has been my process at least. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I heartily agreed with that. Um, that is kind of the process. It's an awakening. And uh, in the trans community, you call it your, your egg cracks, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, finally you come out of your shell and you realize what's going on with you and what has been going on with you. And uh, you start to make changes in your life to accommodate yourself better. You know, a lot of times trans people um, aren't super sure how trans they are or if they are trans until they start making some of those changes. And then you experience something called gender euphoria, which is the opposite of dysphoria. It's where you feel very ecstatic and in line and you feel good and you feel cute. And, you know, um, you start to, your self-esteem improves and you're like, Oh yes, it's kind of like diagnosis through partial treatment, you know, Um, But I will say that uh, cis people, which I will say is anybody who is not somewhere on the trans spectrum, um, uh, they don't sit around wondering about their gender all the time. Mm. You know, that's a really great way for people to kind of understand that or or start to think about that and say, oh, um, you're right. I don't I don't think about that every day. It's not something that I have to, right. Right. I I just am. I think someone had likened it to, or not this experience, but a similar experience of, uh, I get migraine headaches and I know this is much lighter, but, um, the doctor that I was working with also gets migraines and he's like, you, most people without migraine don't wake up every day worrying about how does my head feel today? Right. right. Sort of like your arm or your leg, like, like, yep, you don't think about it being there. And until there's a reason to really be hyper aware of that particular thing. And I think that's similar to what you're what you're saying here. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's it's such a huge process, um, especially if you are an adult uh, who is realizing that you have um, 
autism, you're on the spectrum, you're ADHD, what have you. And then comes along another very stigmatizing thing. You know, um, I, I understand the confusion that parents have um, when they have a neurodivergent child who is also uh, queer in some way, you know, because um, parents worry so much about how the world is going to treat their child for being different. Um, and then this other thing comes along and it's just so stigmatized and so in the news. And, um, but going the opposite way and trying to make the child, um, more like their assigned gender or more like their neurotypical friends, um, is really going to cause a lot of damage internally that you're not going to see right away. Um, but it will come up. You know, I had, I struggled because I was undiagnosed and in the closet, I, I, I drank throughout the entire Bush administration. You know, I just, I really got into some trouble with alcohol and uh, the law with that. And I just really wish I that the information that is out there right now was out there then. Um it's completely life-changing. I always kind of understood in a vague way. I, was, I would say to people, I don't feel like I'm really all that feminine or, but I mean, men are kind of awful in ways. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was straight too, which is very confusing when you're gender diverse. I think it's, you know, you have a different pathway to being trans as a assigned female at birth person. Um, then if you passed very well as cis and straight, you know, um, but I did have, I do have feelings for women and trans people like myself. And, uh, I had to kind of just really admit a lot of things <laughs> to myself <laughs> and come to terms with it. And, um, you just like when I figured out I was on the spectrum, I immediately had to deal with some really horrifying internalized ableism towards autistic people, the things that our society had taught uh, me about them. And uh, same thing with being trans and figuring out I wasn't as straight as I thought I was, you know, um, you, you have to work through, it takes years. Right. Uh, you know, um, and it, depending on where you live, where you live, it can be a very difficult process if you don't have the proper supports. You know, I'm here in the deep south, and it's you know a little <laughs> nerve wrenching to go out in public now. Um, right, right, yeah. And I know I've we, as we've discussed, um, I think no one should feel unsafe in their you know home of origin and where they you know where they've grown up and where they feel most comfortable and where they belong. Um, and all too often, you do see people leave there, uh, those places, because they want to find places that they feel more comfortable in. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the topics you raise here are themes that have happened. I've actually done several podcasts in the last week, and the same theme keeps coming up, which is uh, this this need or need because of society's expectations to kind of hide uh, how 
how we are, how we're feeling, um, and being our authentic selves, you know, masking, which basically kind of falls here, in whichever area you're talking about, just creates so much, um, so many mental health issues that it it's it's staggering and it's frightening um and you know when we talk about this particular uh you know kind of intersection here we have even a higher increase of mental health challenges uh and trying to be able to work with that and you know i i appreciate you sharing you know that you used alcohol i actually had a conversation yesterday with someone about you know substance use to help kind of hide those feelings and push that stuff aside. And it's not new to our, the autistic community. And I think a lot of people don't, aren't aware of that. Um, and so I appreciate you bringing that to light. And, uh, you know, I know one of the things we had talked about in the past is how that impacts. And I think we'll get to, you know, with the, with the legal system around something like that, and then also healthcare, like you had mentioned earlier, um, can, are you, you know, are you open to sharing some of that experience? Well, um, we, we can do another one uh, to go deeper into that. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing is, is you get caught in multiple wildly dysfunctioning systems and institutions. Um, it, when you're autistic and you've been put in a place like a private prison or something like I was, um, it's just particularly difficult to get through because of all the sensory information. You know, I'm a very empathetic, empathic person, and there's so much suffering going on around you, um, not to mention your own suffering. No, sure. And so it's like, it's almost feels like a physical assault to be in a jail, even if you're not being physically assaulted, which also happens more often to neurodivergent people in jails. Um, I think if you did a study on trans people and autistic people who take their lives, I think you would find that a lot of, there's a lot of queer overlap in that too, because it's just so overwhelming to try to explain to the rest of the world, especially your family employers um and even worse all these official institutions um that we all know are malfunctioning uh, it's hard to explain to them something that's so internal you know most uh prejudices are generally based on sight you see something is different about a person they have a different race they have a visible disability um you know or you can tell what religion they are and then they're a minority religion. But when you get into things like being gay or trans or neurodivergent, that's so internal. And it's not something that people can figure out about you immediately. Um, but sometimes it is. <laughs> and um, America just doesn't care, you know, about people's internal lives or their external ones if they are minorities. So um, I don't know where I was going with this, but I, I think that's why there is so much mental illness and substance abuse. And yes, alcohol is 
definitely uh, a much bigger problem in the autistic and trans communities than we give it credit for. And I mean, I've had trans women friends get DUIs and we're like, oh my gosh, what are you going to do? I mean, what, what population are they going to put you in, in jail? And it's usually isolation, um, which causes its own damage. And the same thing happens to neurodivergent people who can't get along with the general population because they're so socially vulnerable. They get put in isolation or they get, uh, I mean, I know people who have, you know, been nearly beaten to death in jails for being autistic because um, it's a very brutal social environment as you can right. imagine. And it, and it changes quickly <laughs> and, and nobody's giving you any information about what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you add the layer of, you know, having some challenges with seeing social cues or just yeah. even reading a room, right. That can be, I would imagine that could be a really challenging, just add to the challenge of that. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's cruel to put most people in jail who are there. Um, Uh, you know, I, I, none of the people I was in there with were a direct threat to anybody. You know, I saw women, um, who were wheelchair users. I saw women with, um, other developmental disabilities and often severe trauma can look like, uh, being developmentally different. Um, so that is just rife in jails, especially uh, for females, it's, there were also, interestingly, a lot of uh, trans men in there with us. Um, Of course, they're safer among the women, you know, um, but, right, but uh, although there were obviously trans men, they were too poor to afford um, uh, access to medical care that we need. And that's a way that autism and uh, being trans are very similar is that um, the way to make our lives better is to have acceptance throughout society, to have accommodations, and to have specialized medical care available to us. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important that we have all those things to live a, um, a life that we can survive. You know. Yeah, and I, I actually had this conversation with someone working with uh, at-risk youth, um, it, it, mental illness, you know, kind of overlapping with autism. And, you know, one of the things that his program is looking to do is develop uh, very customized uh, and tailored treatments for people with mental health challenges that are autistic. So it's very, we're talking really specific here, but it's, and and you're bringing it up again. And uh, what would, you know, what are some of the ideas that you have? And, and I also want to circle back to kind of families because I think that's a, the community support and uh, is a big, not just your family, but community and finding other people to connect with. All of those things are important. Um, but, but since we're on the topic of, of healthcare here, uh, and I've done some workshops around working with healthcare providers, uh, but, but what is it that, and, and again, from your own experience that you've seen that could have, could even just now simple, quick things that maybe we could have just, could just do a little bit differently before we create, like, hopefully we create right training programs that we can kind of help people get uh, better educated. Yeah. um, 
a big problem, uh, especially with dealing with co-occurring mental illness and uh, substance abuse in us, is that the treatment facilities are not uh, very accommodating. I mean, I went straight from jail to court-ordered rehab, and um, it was co- co-ed. There are a bunch of scary men in there with us from federal prisons, um, uh, white nationalists with Hitler tattoos on their necks. And, um, you know, I'm just sitting in there. I got caught drunk driving, you know, and um, it's, it's just a very intimidating atmosphere. Also, you're supposed to be like in the day room and not hanging out in your bedroom for the whole day. And so it's just constant exposure to people and they're always talking and um, if you want to go outside, you got to smoke or something. Everybody's smoking out there. And I don't smoke. And the the smell bothers me. And it, it's a sensory problem. Um, so what happened in my treatment was that I was traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bed bug infestation. Oh. And I got bitten to death. And I was allergic to them. And I mean, my face was swollen up the whole time. I was exhausted constantly. I just really needed more quiet time in the dark away from people to regulate myself. And that was not allowed in rehab. Um, It was very forced socialization. Um, And that's something that needs to change. We need to go about drug treatment differently in general anyway, because the focus was on you made a bad choice. And um, nothing about the person's circumstances, mental health, or whether they were on the spectrum or not was ever taken into account. It was supposed to be a medical facility helping people. And it was just like, avoid triggers, avoid triggers, avoid triggers. And it's like, are you kidding me? Half the people there were from rural counties where there's no jobs. There's nothing. There's despair. um, There's dysfunctional family. There's abuse, domestic abuse. And you're telling them to avoid triggers and make good choices. (laughs) And you're just sending them out of rehab back into those situations. Right. Right. Yeah, and nothing's going to change. Uh, and they then that you come back and they guilt you for relapsing. And you have to literally they make people write relapse stories. And they know why they relapse. They're like, I live in a dying town. I have no opportunities. I'm too poor to even leave here. And uh, so that's what ends up happening. We need to have more outpatient for neurodivergent um drug treatment, which is difficult because the point is to kind of keep people away from their substance until they get it out of their system. Um, So there aren't really a bunch of easy solutions to that right now. We don't have the resources. Um, What else is challenging? Um, I I think I forgot your original question. No, no, you're you're (laughs) headed right down. Like what, what else can we do? I think, um, you know, if we're, if, if we can I, address people's day-to-day circumstances, instead yeah. of a- asking like, how is this person flawed? Mm. We can say, how is this person's environment flawed? Mm-hmm. 
And we have to come at it from that direction because if you're just going back into the same situation you or you have not had your co-occurring mental health problems addressed like severe anxiety, trauma, complex PTSD, regular PTSD, I mean, there was no... There was no addressing that in any of the group or uh, smaller group sessions I went to. And uh, eventually I was just, I shut down. And I just stopped talking or, or participating in any of it until I got out. Um, uh, and it didn't help me quit drinking. I had to do that later on my own. Um, just, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 Honestly, I had some physical problems that made it very difficult for me to tolerate alcohol. And that's what did it, you know. Um, but another problem and the reason we turn to drugs and alcohol is because um, psychiatric care is so hard to find. Um, also, it's very judgmental if you're a non-conforming, a visibly non-conforming person to get uh, the kinds of meds that you really need to to regulate yourself. like anti-anxiety medications, which they restrict a lot. And instead they prescribe things off label that aren't actually that good for anxiety and cause more anxiety in neurodivergent people. And so it's a perpetuating cycle because you have to take the edge off at some point. Um, a person can only take so much. And again, it's, it's, you're trying to convince people who went to college and are professionals and live in nice neighborhoods and consider themselves to be very nice, well-meaning people um, that you are worthy of the same kind of medical care that they might receive, you know, but they're just, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I and, think also people aren't aware at how I think we look at those things and I'm just thinking, you know, from my previous perspective is, oh, well, there are, there's treatment facilities and there are, you know, psychologists out there and there are programs. And, and also I live in an area of the country where those things do exist in more abundance than in other areas. But even with those being there, first, they're not always the best places, especially for the, the population that we're talking about. Also, they sometimes are underfunded. They don't have the resources that are needed, right? So like the whole, we might conceptually feel like these programs exist, but they exist in, in uh, underfunded and they exist without the right resources. And sometimes the people that are working there aren't trained well enough to work with who they have been assigned to. So, right, like these are just layers upon layers that get added to that. It, that's absolutely true. Um, but a problem that people aren't seeing enough is that the entire framing of drug rehab doesn't match more recent models of what addiction is like. Again, like I said, it's not some kind of internal disease model. It's although people can have genetic predisposition to certain things, but primarily it's environmental. It's, it's not what's wrong with you. It's like what was done to you. What circumstances have you been in and how can we improve that to where you don't feel like you need to escape those circumstances all the time? But wholeheartedly 12 step programs are still the standard. And there have been books and papers and research and, 
and just mountains of anecdotal evidence of how it's actually harmful. And a lot of the 12 steps uh, clash with each other. I think uh, one thing that's not addressed, especially down here uh, in the South where there's a lot of evangelicals is um, spiritual trauma. I mean, we're talking about people who don't fit in in one way or another. Um, uh, you know, they had a lot of <laughs> people trying to make them conform to uh, a certain ideal, uh, a churchy person, uh, a straight person, a normal person, um, a white person. And uh, those things aren't possible for a lot of people. <laughs> and so you get rejected and you experience uh, re rejection and abuse through uh, your religious upbringing. So then they bring you into rehab and it's all God-based. It's, you know, a, a spiritual program. Um, as everyone who has studied the 12 steps, <laughs> it, it, it was designed by uh, some womanizers <laughs> in the 1930s, you know, and um, it just seems like these institutions are extremely reluctant to listen to the people they serve in general, people with mental illnesses, people with disabilities, people who are poor, people who are not white, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, that's everywhere. But um, it's especially harmful when these institutions like mental health care and just regular health care um, and the court system and the prison system have so much power over your body and your health and your future. Mm -hmm. And, um, that none of these people will, uh, because they believe I am an expert. I had a class at school, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's just like so often they'll just cling to what was the main framing when they went to med school, mm -hmm. you know, or psychology school or whatever. And uh, things change. Things change from the bottom up. We realize things from the bottom up. Um, and that's what's happening right now is autistic people and trans people are kind of uh, the newest um, civil rights movements uh, <laughs> around right now. And uh, we're still just at a stage where we're trying to get people to just listen to us mm -hmm. at all. Right. Not, not that racial minorities are having <laughs> good luck with that either right, right. now. Um but uh, it, it's very distressing that um, we, we, we can't really get any input through to them. They'll sit there and listen to you and, <laughs> and, make, and make faces like they're hearing you. Uh, but the proof is in the pudding. Nothing changes. Um, they really don't consider what we're saying. We're like, the framing is wrong. You're blaming, you're blaming people who just don't have a lot of options or a lot of ability to make the correct choices um, mm -hmm. for what they're doing. Um, yeah, and, and I also, uh, again, having talked with a lot of people, well, first with adults who are looking for help, right, who are seeking help um, and trying to find them the right therapist, right? Like just connecting them with, or a group um, is so challenging. They're, and I, I have been met with a lot of resistance from therapists 
feeling like I just, it's so complicated. I just don't understand, right? So now, now fortunately, we're seeing uh, educational programs that are specializing in these very areas because of the need. But we still have this big gap where we have a lot of, you know, clinicians who are well-meaning and can work with most of the population, I think. I'm, I'm generalizing, <laughs> but... Um, but are afraid be because of lack of awareness or lack of understanding to work with some of these issues that we've been talking about. And so, right, when you're in um, a governmental subsidized system, those are a lot of times people just out of school, people who don't, right? Like, so they're very early on or they they don't know how to manage some of these very, um, these very, tricky kind of issues that we're talking about. And that's true. Uh, half the posts I see <laughs> everywhere, the ones that bother me the most are where people are going to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor, and they have these terrible experiences where the person won't listen to them. They won't understand. Uh, their life perspective is so different. Um, what happens is it's, easy, it's easier to become a professional and get through school and jump through those hoops and be accepted in your profession if you are more, uh, if you, the more conforming to the dominant norms that you are. Um, if you're odd looking, if you communicate differently, if you're queer, you know, uh, if you're not accommodated at your college in your program, which happens a lot, people drop out. Um, so it kind of, calls people with multiple marginalizations from becoming professionals. And that's the problem we're seeing. You know, I have so many things going on, CPTSD, um, chronic illness, um, co-occurring mental illness. I have a history of substance abuse and self-harm. Um, I'm dealing with my gender and trying to live my authentic self now. And that's a lot of things. And, uh, a lot of people are just like, I don't have the professional bandwidth for that, you know? Um, and it, unfortunately, people, when people do try to help someone with that many things going on, it still goes wrong in a lot of ways. They feel unseen, unheard, uh, unstudied, unresearched. Um, True. Um, and uh, often infantilized. You know, the, the profession, the, de the degree on the wall comes before your experience every time, <laughs> you know, every time. Right. And uh, of course they're like, well, there hasn't been a study about this yet. It's like, yeah, studies happen when people notice uh, a trend going on in a certain population. And the people who are going to notice that trend are the people in that population first. You know, we're, we will say, oh, look, we're having difficulty with this or that, or why is this happening to this? Or why are we like this? Uh, we would like some scientific inquiry into that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they're like, no, we're just going to, we're just going to gene sequence you and see if we can <laughs> prevent you from being born or something, you know? Oh gosh. And, no. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, no, no, that's not the direction we want to go. <laughs> um, we would just like, um, I, I, honestly, I don't know how much study really needs to be done on us because we can tell you what we need. Um, and uh, 
peer counseling works really well um, with us. You find an older trans autistic person or somebody who, uh, you know, you click with better, who is willing to give their time and just talk to you and listen. Um, I think for both autistic and uh, trans and queer people, uh, finding good Facebook groups. Now, there's a lot of bad ones out there. Um, but there's a lot of good ones, too, where positive dialogue comes across because we're scattered throughout the population in such a way that it's hard to just run into other people like you on the street, you know, um, especially during COVID, of course. Mm, sure. Uh, so I will tell you, it has been very interesting, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do about my gender dysphoria during quarantine. It's been beneficial in some ways and not in others, you know, because I've been able to get used to my new style and everything privately before I go out in public. Um, it's given me a lot of time to think um, and be comfortable with myself. Um, but also it's been very isolating and difficult because everybody's mental health has been worse right. during this. Uh, and it's put strain on friendships and relationships and families being cooped up together who maybe not be <laughs> that accepting of you, you know? And so there's been a lot of trans pain out here too, yeah. you know? So let's talk about the family piece a little bit too, because I know, um, you know, one of the things I've talked with other people about is yes, finding the right resources, right? Let's try to find a therapist who's open and willing to talk. Um, and let's find, uh, you know, community with friends or with online resources, especially now. Uh, but let's talk about family because family can be so key to providing a little bit of both of those things, right? Community and support and be able to help you find the right resources. Um, so, so how, you know, what can we as families do to be supportive because I think sometimes it starts at we well we don't even know where to start sometimes <laughs> yeah um I think there are a few things that it's important for parents and families to remember when you have uh, a family member uh, come out and it's first of all <laughs> it's 100% not about you oftentimes parents uh, because of the way parenthood is, uh, see children as an extension of themselves. And so when you change something so radical about yourself, it seems like a personal affront sometimes. Um, it feels like a rejection of family, uh, especially when it comes to like renaming yourself, that causes a lot of pain um, and reflection in families. Um here you've been thinking of uh, your girl child <laughs> as your daughter for so long or uh, thinking uh, of a child as your son. And then that changes. And that's just a real sea change mentally for people. And it does take time. But here's the thing. No matter how difficult it is for a family, mentally, emotionally, or, you know, just socially to come to terms with that, it's nothing compared to what the child or loved one is going through, or Absolutely. it has been going through for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of families will 
will have some bad reactions and they'll be like, why are you doing this to us? This is about us, us, us. And it's like, no, it's not about you. Um, and, or, or you came out just to rebel against us or something. It's like, no, uh, I don't think any trans person who wants to come out has not thought deep and hard about how their family is going to react and how it's going to affect them. That's ridiculous. Nobody's uh, trying to do that to be rebellious or um, also get help for yourself. And we were just talking about how hard that is. Um, There needs to be more therapy for um, families and significant others of people who are going through these kinds of realizations and changes. Um, because it does change the nature of the relationship somewhat. Um, and families need better guidance um, through this. They need therapists who understand that position, but aren't going <laughs> to sabotage the person who's coming out, you know, because I want to say to my family, get maybe go to some therapy about this or something. And uh, then I think, no, there's, just religious therapy around here Mm, Uh, and that's not gonna yeah (laughs) right no no I I totally get it but but your point is well taken I think oftentimes you're right as a parent we do see our kids as extensions um and and somehow it's a reflection on maybe we didn't do and we were funny we were talking about this just with an autism diagnosis but that maybe we didn't do something right, or maybe we could have whatever fill in like the good enough, you know, we're not good enough blank in there. And so um, it does come back to that. But I think that might be a natural reaction at first. But if you're working with supportive people, whether it's a therapist or other family members, that can help get put in check and say, you know, this really isn't about you. This is right. about accepting your child no matter what and that that unconditional love and that acceptance and then being on the journey together, I think would be right. Like the we we like, all <laughs> hope for that kind of humility <laughs> and cooperation in our families. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> You know where I live. (laughs) I do. I do. And and I, you know, that's why I I mean I I do this work and I'm uh, I want people to kind of be in that place and reflect and say, oh wow, maybe maybe I could have handled something a little bit differently, or maybe I can, you know, but that doesn't mean we can't do something different. uh, I would just say in general, the way to behave towards a family member who has revealed these things is to uh, if you're really really upset about it it's probably not a good idea to show them or talk to them about how much it's affecting you and stuff because that's going to start a guilt and shame spiral in the person and they're already dealing with becoming a more stigmatized person out in the world and that's just kind of piling on I mean, I'm not saying it's not understandable and we don't make mistakes and have reactions that we can't help. But after that, that initial stuff, it's important to deal with that privately. And when you're interacting with the person to be as supportive, cheerful, accepting as possible. Just be kind, be kind, you know, try to think ahead, ask them what, 
ask the person what you can do to make them feel more comfortable or what they're doing that's making them uncomfortable or something. And we just hope for that kind of empathy, you know? Right. So, yeah, I think that that would be a key takeaway for, um, for this conversation is to really think, think about um, offering up what, and asking, what does the other person need? And, and what can I do to make the path a little easier? Or what can I do, you know, as a parent and as an educator, we don't want to see our kids suffer, right? That's, a, that's the biggest thing. And sometimes right. why this reaction comes up. Um, but, but in, in kind of not being your authentic self, then that is suffering. So how can we whatever we can do to help lessen that as a parent and as a family member uh, or partner, uh, let's be that person. And, and I think, yeah, I would say to families and parent and uh, parents and family members and significant others to, to join some groups um, online uh, that include both trans people and family members or on the autism thing uh, that include parents and autistic people interacting, um, which can yeah. be fraught, but there's a few good ones out there. There um, are. And I don't know if you're aware, but um, <laughs> the Asperger Autism Network that I use, you know, I still work with them. Um, they do have uh, exactly that one for parents, a group for parents and a group for um, trans and uh, LGBTQ identifying people and sometimes they cross over um, but definitely and it's online now because of COVID so uh, definitely can be reached from anywhere so uh, I will I will put that little plug out there because I know there are not that many um, but definitely worth checking out so um, yeah, I, I appreciate you being with me today and spending this time. Uh, I know we could probably talk about a ton more stuff and, and I think, I think we should, I think we should definitely pull out, um, maybe some more specific conversations if you would be open to that. Oh, no problem. This is all I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm for hire. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.